0: Honest with you, I have taken on this whole thing about life. I I focus on living in the moment, and I'm always saying live moment by moment because I just feel with my metastatic diagnosis and how many times I've metastasized, the cancer is all over my body. I, I just refuse to let it get too deep in my head space because I know once I let it weaken that so much, until it's just gonna take my physical strength with it. And that's one of my biggest fighting powers. Like, I can't let it grab hold of my mental strength. And even yesterday, I went to the brain specialist and I told him, I was like, after we finished talking, I packed and headed to the beach.
1: From SHARE Cancer Support, this is Season 2 of the RNBC Life Podcast, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm thrilled to kick off this new season filled with fascinating, inspiring people living with MBC, and the researchers, oncologists, and health professionals who are making a difference. So glad you're here since no one should face NBC alone. In today's episode, our co-hosts Natalia Green, Sheila McGlone, and Daniel Thurston speak with some of the extraordinary individuals who have overcome prognosis expectations and continue to live with NBC far longer than anyone could have predicted. Some of us call them unicorns. Others call them exceptional survivors or responders. So whatever you decide to call them, they are people with NBC who've had exceptional responses to their treatment. Today, we're sharing the stories of five women, Chris, Janice, Julia, Sheila, and Terlisa, who've lived past the odds they were given. We also speak to Dr. Mark Burkhardt and Dr. Stephanie Graf to find out more about studying outliers like these women and what we can learn to help the rest of us living with MBC. Sheila McGlone, our co-host for this episode, is our own unicorn having lived for over 11 years with this disease. Here she is. We started the conversation with our exceptional panel
2: by asking them to describe themselves before and after their diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer.
0: Hi, I'm Charlisa Shepherd. I am... Um a mother of two young ladies. I was diagnosed at 31 years old and I was actually in half months pregnant at that time. I was working on my career job. I loved my job. Had been on my job about 13, 13 and a half years. And then a breast cancer diagnosis in 1998. That was early stage. It wasn't even two years later, I was diagnosed metastatic in 2001. And at 34 years old, I was retired. I was seeing my OBGYN and I kept noticing a little lump and I kept mentioning it to the OBGYN. And because of my age and he just dispelled it as, oh, it's probably clogged ducts." So me being naive, I went along with it. Back in 98, nobody was talking about breast cancer diagnosis like they're talking about it now and definitely not so much in my community he finally in his exact words to me turlisa if you insist would do a mammogram now they did a biopsy and stage 3 cancer 3.5 centimeter tumor i was completely shocked somewhat disappointed as well because i was like i knew something was going on i knew this was more than just clogged, milked up. But then I had to refocus because at that point, I knew that my life was about to completely change. only had been married three years. had a two-year-old toddler, had just turned two at home. And now they're looking at me and saying, you're probably going to have to be induced and have the baby right away because this is aggressive you need treatments right away. So wow. my life literally was just flipped upside down at 31 years old and threw me right into a delivery. I was having a baby less than, I think 10 days later, I had triple positive, PR positive, PR positive. Even though I was diagnosed with the breast cancer, I you know, was putting all my energy into my babies. And in reverse of that, it gave me added strength. It gave me a deeper mission in going forward. And it's just me. I I try to look at every positive part of anything that I can grab a hold of, especially on this metastatic journey. I just, I try to pull anything that would give me added strength. Less than two years later, I was back at work. I had chemotherapy treatments. I had uh, left breast mastectomy. In November 2001, it metastasized to the bones, lungs, and liver. I've had two other additional metastatic diagnoses where it metastasized to the lungs, the spine, abdomen, and brain. I didn't know anything about metastatic breast cancer, considered myself pretty tough. Like yeah. that had something to do with it. But very shocked. But the biggest part of it was my oncologist gave up on me at that point. She was literally in tears, holding my hands. I had my husband at the time was in the room, my sister and her husband, and my mother. And I was trying to be strong for them. But she told me, Terlisa, this is not good. I need you to go home, quit work, and get your life in order. Her exact words to a 34 year old and you did (laughs) i I went and quit work i retired they retired me had a ceremony and everything (laughs) (laughs) i didn't give up on life (laughs) just saw work and that wasn't going to work for me
3: here is chris needles i i live in pittsburgh pennsylvania I've been married for 35 plus years and have four children. They are the grounding force in my life. And I also have two granddaughters now, which gives me great joy and delight. Two of my children are married. And I currently work part-time as a nanny. I've been trained secretarially, and I do a little bit of like a virtual assistant work for a couple people, all of which tries to keep me out of trouble. Usually (laughs) I was 40 and was reading our local newspaper, you know, at 11 o'clock one night, you know, mother of four kids. I'm always busy during the day. And I saw an ad for a breast surgeon who was doing free exams because it was breast cancer awareness month. Oh, I'm 40. I should probably do this. I called and made an appointment. I think they took me in two days later and the doctor felt a lump and it was pretty deep. He's like, we need to get you a mammogram. I'm like, okay, give me the phone number. I'll call and schedule. And he's like, no, you're walking down the hall right now. I was shell shocked. And the technician did the ultrasound and I could tell by the look on her face that she wasn't seeing good things. The doctor called me back the next day and said, we need to have you come in and talk about your options. And they gave me the option of a lumpectomy or a needle biopsy. And I'm like, you're taking it out. You're going to operate. It was on a Thursday that we had that discussion. And Monday I went in for a lumpectomy and they called me and said, yes, it's definitely cancerous. We'll need to do lymph node surgery to find out if it has spread any of that. So I went in the following Monday and had lymph node surgery, and we still hadn't told our children anything. They were old enough to understand, but I still didn't want to scare them until I had answers. So we just told them I had to go into the hospital for some tests and spend the night. Then I came home the next day and just kept living my life. So they found that 18 of my lymph nodes were involved, which put me at stage three, and it was a... 3.6 3.6 centimeter tumor they took out of my breast. I received the standard treatment of adriamycin, cytoxin, tax of tear. And then in October of 2007, with my annual checkup with my oncologist, he was like, why don't we do a breast MRI instead of a mammogram this year? And I'm very thankful that he did that because they saw a shadow in my lung which would not have been seen on a mammogram. Came back that yes, it was triple negative breast cancer in my lung. And my doctor wanted to use Avastin with my chemo because he wanted to use that, he had to do a baseline brain MRI. And they found a three centimeter tumor in my brain. I was not having any symptoms. I was not having any breathing issues. I was not having balance issues. So then I went in to see the neuro-oncologist and he came in he said, you've got this brain tumor. My recommendation is that we surgically remove it sooner rather than later. We don't know how long it's been there, how fast it's growing, none of that. I said, okay, I didn't eat breakfast. Can you operate today? And he treated me like I might've had seven heads, (laughs) but he said, no, I can't operate today let me go check my calendar. And he came back in, he said, I have an opening tomorrow morning. And we made the plan and they took the brain tumor out surgically. I did 11 months of three weeks on, one week off chemo with Avastin. And then after I finished the 11 months, I stayed on Avastin for another year and a half every other week. And I will say that My doctor, being so proactive, had my tumor treated with 16 different chemo drugs to see what was going to work. Everybody's different, and I feel like everybody should get that. That should be the standard, that you find out what is going to keep people alive, not give them a drug because it's the standard. And if that drug does nothing except weaken my body... Where will I be? Without that oncologist being so proactive and really doing the best for me, I don't think my prognosis would have been where it is now. I've had no evidence of disease since probably 2009. I see my oncologist every six months, and we take it from there. I don't have any delusions that I'll never have cancer again. But if or when it comes back, we'll deal with it. Here
2: is Janice Cowden.
4: I have a whole life that didn't involve cancer. So I grew up in the Midwest, and my husband and I actually went to the same high school, but we did not date in high school. And eventually we got married and raised our kids in Ohio. And then we moved to Southwest Florida about 14 years ago. And our kids were not married. They were doing the college thing and all of that at that time. We moved here and my husband worked for another five years down here before he retired. And then we now have three grandchildren, two five-year-old boys and a three-year-old girl, all out of state, two in Ohio, one in Colorado. And my career was actually in nursing. And I worked in pediatrics. I never worked in oncology. That was not, that's a new field for me. And my husband's an engineer, worked for a civil engineering firm. We've been married for a little over 41 years. And we love to travel. We normally, without COVID, we love to travel to see the kids and the grandkids. And then my husband's a backpacker. So he hikes about four to five times per year. He's done the entire Appalachian Trail. He's done several other ones. Basically, we are both retired and spend our time, non-COVID times, just enjoying friends. We live in a great social community, so we have a lot of good friends here, and we, we just really enjoy them. I actually had found a lump in my breast about a year before it was detected on a mammogram. And it was missed and dismissed by my gynecologist. It was tender. It was very close to the sternum area. And in her words, cancer isn't tender. So in 2011, at my annual mammogram, I asked the technician to try her best to get into that area. And, and it was very difficult because of bone, rib and sternum and so forth right there. But it was found on the imaging. And I had a biopsy and I was stage one triple negative. And that was in October of 2011. I had a lumpectomy, had brachytherapy radiation, and then four rounds of cytoxin chemotherapy. Did very well. For a while, I had that great fear of recurrence. And I was almost at five years and happened to be at a routine appointment with my oncologist. I'd been getting Prolia for osteopenia. And I knew that one of the side effects was bone and joint pain, but it, it just kept worsening. So my oncologist suggested that we do a PET scan. He prefaced it by saying, I don't expect to find anything. You're so healthy. Everything looks good, but let's just do it. So we did a PET scan and I had four nodes that lit up in my chest. Three were on the original breast cancer side. So that would have just been a regional recurrence. But then I had a, a node on the right side and it was too difficult to biopsy. So we did the, the subpectoral node, biopsy that, and we discussed having a mediastinoscopy or a VATS procedure to biopsy that uh, right hilar node. And he talked me out of it. And I saw a thoracic surgeon. The thoracic surgeon talked me out of it and said, if it disappears with treatment, that's our answer. It was malignant. So the subpectoral node biopsy turned out to be a recurrence of triple negative. Anthracyclines were very commonly used For triple negative. In 2016, it was standard of care. So I went through four rounds of adriamycin cytoxin chemotherapy and had a PET scan at the end of the fourth round. And it showed complete resolution. There there was no evidence of disease on the scan. And my oncologist said, let's just take this out a couple of months, do another scan and see where we are. I was still no evidence of disease, and uh, so I did PET CT scans every three to four months the first year, remained no evidence of disease, and as of November, I was four years out from being on systemic treatment and no evidence of
2: disease. And this is Julia Miles.
5: I, I am a mother, was originally, I was actually born in Brazil, came to the United States for college and has been here for as, mu- as long as I have spent in Brazil. So I'm, I'm right at the cusp where I've lived in the U.S. for longer. And I, I was an economist before the diagnosis. I used to work for the central bank. I worked in communications. I really liked my job. I was very good at what I did, and I was at the height of my career, really excited about work, also personally doing well, and had just found out that I was pregnant and was enjoying the first few months of my pregnancy when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I was 29. Even when I think back right now, I don't know how I made it through those days. Of course, the fear for my own life, but also having to consider treatments to keep me alive that would potentially hurt my son. Cancer and pregnancy is very complicated, as you can imagine. It's also more common than people think. My initial reaction was, don't touch my baby, cut this out to not think of giving you poison. But the data really support chemotherapy. They don't know the extent to how far the disease is, has gone. You can't do a CT scan. And since there is some data, and they know that the placenta does protect the baby, it somehow doesn't get to the baby in the way that it gets to the mother. So I had four cycles of mycin. And Cytoxan, while pregnant, I would literally walk across the parking lot of the hospital and go from the infusion to labor and delivery and spend the night there. And they so would monitor my baby, knowing that I was already there and that I had the best possible care and that the best people were right there if I needed them. That really helped. My son they put until 37 weeks when I had to be induced because it was time to to take the drugs that I couldn't take while pregnant. He still sort of had three more weeks uh, to grow but he was completely healthy. It was probably one of the happiest moments of my life, not only to have my baby but to know that he was okay. Literally the day after I pushed him out, they brought me downstairs to do scans. When I went to see my doctor he had to tell me that there was scans so that I had wide all over my bones in my liver at the time we didn't know about the brain nuts yet because I hadn't done a scan but I did it shortly thereafter so he had to sit with me and my family and he cried with me this woman who just had a baby I remember asking my doctor like how long do I have and he would say I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you. It really, really will depend on how you respond to these drugs. There is such a difference in the outcomes, and some people really respond to these drugs. Some people don't respond to them at all. It is not something I can foresee. My cancer actually started to respond really well to the targeted therapy. The problem was that I had to stop it because my heart wouldn't take it. Pregnancy can cause heart problems adriamycin can cause heart problems and Herceptin and progetta can cause heart problems so i had all at the same time so i had to stop all chemo i had to have, start taking cardiac meds it has to be done really slowly it's a very complicated process and i i am so grateful for the team that i had i with being so sick we decided to leave the midwest and spent some time in Miami for what we thought could be my last few months of life, and it turned out that my original oncologist advisor from fellowship was heading up the breast cancer department at the University of Miami, and he is married to a cardiologist, so the two of them saved my life.
2: So my name is Sheila McLeod, and I am a 25-year Air Force veteran. I have one daughter who is 31, and I've been married for four and a half years. I have been probably to over 20 different countries. And my goal was, before I left the military, was to visit every state in the U.S. And I live in Swansea, Illinois. My daughter, she has her master's in social work. Um, I have a dog, uh, Kane Corso. My mom died in 2004. Um, I just left um, seeing my dad. I have three sisters. I have many nieces and nephew. And my nephew, um, he plays for the Miami Dolphins, number 55. He's the linebacker. Yes, Jerome Baker, that's my nephew. I have tons of friends, tons of family. My original diagnosis, just a little backstory, my mom died of metastatic breast cancer, which I didn't know that's Metastatic breast cancer meant stage four. It has spread to her lungs. And she was diagnosed in 2001. Um, I remember I was in Okinawa, Japan, and I got the call. She passed away in 2004. And five years later, I received the diagnosis. I felt a sneeze. I was sitting at my desk. I was active duty military sitting there. And all of a sudden, I sneezed. And I was just like, man, that burns. I didn't think nothing of it. Then it burned again like maybe a week later. So I called my military doctor and I was just like, something don't feel right. And so I said, I think it might be my breast. And she said, well, breast cancer doesn't hurt. And, you know, but now I realize breast cancer doesn't hurt. It hurts when it metastasize. So I went and had a mammogram. I had been getting mammogram since uh, I was 37 because of my history. And the radiologist, he set me down after I had my mammogram. She said, see here. Lieutenant Colonel, he called me in. He had my x-rays up on my mammogram. And he said, You see that white stuff? That's cancer. And he said, what you were feeling was every time you sneeze, it was rubbing up against your ribs. So I had cancer. Didn't even know you can get cancer in your ribs. I had cancer in my ribs and liver. And being active duty, I had to go down to Cancer Center in St. Louis. I couldn't go to the VA. And that's where I started my treatment. And that's where I've been for the past 11 years, getting targeted therapy because my cancer was HER2-positive, ERPR-positive. I had four progressions. And me and my doctor, we were able to talk to them. I was like, let's go aggressive. I've had seven surgeries. I had reconstruction. And one of the reasons I had reconstruction because I wanted to feel some normalcy. It took me a long time to accept it because I'm just like, I'm 43 years old. I just bought a house. What am I supposed to do with breast cancer? <laughs> and then, like, you know, she said stage four. And I was just like, stage four? Well, how many stages is said? And she said, well, you got all of them. Because initially, they first sent me to the breast surgeon because they thought, okay, maybe she can get a mastectomy. But the breast surgeon was like, well, there's no use to you getting a mastectomy because it's already in your bloodstream. But I looked at her. I said, I want this breast off, and I'll be back. Whether it's a year, two, three years, I'll be back. So I kept asking my doctor. I said, I want a mastectomy. I just want this breast off of me because it, it tried to kill me. So finally, she met with the tumor board, um, and they authorized me uh, a mastectomy. I had a right mastectomy, and they did a breast reduction on my left. And it was 11 hours surgery, and I went a year and a half because they wanted to make sure um, that the cancer didn't grow back in my breast. And um, I went a year and a half without a breast or a prosthesis, and I can remember going out the house without my prosthesis and it was like the world ended. I cried. I was embarrassed. I was like, what are people gonna think of me? But then I was just like, this is me. Like, this is my new normal. Yeah, I was diagnosed de novo in 2009, and I've had four progression. And I've been on many different treatment plans, including on a clinical trial, which I've been on since July of 2018. So,
4: our we have a loose definition of what a unicorn is, just because you're right. It just varies on dependent on your cancer, on your treatment, and obviously who you are. So, we're defining the unicorn as define the odds of their life expectancy with someone with MBC. do you remember the first unicorn that you met after you were diagnosed? I had the distinct pleasure of meeting. Terlisa Shepard, when I did my Hear My Voice training with LBBC in, in April, 2017, actually that conference that I attended was the first time I had met anyone with metastatic breast cancer. So I walked into this room of hundreds of people who are living with this disease. And then in my smaller advocacy training class, I met Terlisa and when I found out, how many years, decades she's been living with her disease. And, and I know she's she's not the same subtype as I am, but it really offered me hope. And of course she's such a, a joy anyway as a person, but I had most of what I knew about metastatic triple negative or even MBC that I had learned at that point was through researching online and I knew that the median overall survival was about 3 years and for triple negative it was more like 12 to 24 months. So I honestly didn't think I'd be alive a year later anyway. But when I, I and I met several people who had been living with metastatic breast cancer in April of 2017 and it really changed my mindset about it and it made me realize that Doesn't matter what those statistics say, we are all unique. We will respond uniquely and our longevity will be unique to us as well. So I I was just amazed at, at her attitude. She's so positive and she really inspired me. She inspired me in a lot of ways when it came to advocacy, when it came to just having hope yeah it was it was a, a great first person to meet
5: i don't know if she was the first but she was definitely the most remarkable and still is the most remarkable in my life and that's Teresa Shepherd she i met her at um, the LBBC in 2018 so i had already lived with NBC for Five years at that point and I had heard about her but I had never met her and when I met her I told her like oh my goodness you're real and I read about <laughs> you she's pregnant as well sure. um, she also had brain med from the beginning and I said my doctor told me about you early on but I, I didn't believe that you were real <laughs> and I, I said when he told me, I said, she wasn't diagnosed when she was pregnant, because he said, I know this young mom with this baby, and uh, the baby's mom was a grown-up, and I said, she wasn't pregnant when she was diagnosed, and he said, yes, she was. <laughs> I, said, no, but I bet she didn't have extensive meds, and he said, yes, she had. Uh, okay, for sure it wasn't brain meds actually it was like in the early 2000s she had so when I met her I said I can't believe you're real you are like my dream come true and you had a baby and she's an adult now and she said not only that she's actually here and she introduced me to her daughter who was a college student at the time and Beautiful, strong, young woman. I'm a single mother, and he really needs me. I need to leave as long as (laughs) Teresa.
4: It means two different things. It means that I am grateful. I wake up every day and feel so much gratitude and realize how fortunate I am because I realize that there are many people, even people who are stable for many years at a time, some never reach no evidence of disease. And I think for me, it's something that I didn't expect, but it's definitely a gift. And at the same time, I really struggle with survivor's guilt. It's, and I think that comes about, it's more related to my advocacy than it is to my actual living with the disease. I'm watching other people who are not so fortunate. I've lost so many friends over the last four years, and that's hard. And that causes me to, and especially I've had a couple of really good friends who died from triple negative, and watching them go from being so vibrant, just like me, and they were no evidence of disease, and then they have progression, and when they had progression, it it just, it took them rapidly, and I think that's very difficult.
2: Often, someone living with NBC hears of an exceptional responder to a specific treatment. There are so many questions. Did you do anything differently? Diet, exercise. How do you respond to those questions?
4: I say the same thing every single time that for whatever reason, it's pure luck. I had a complete pathological response to my treatment. I always tell them our cancers are as unique as we are, and that I've made no lifestyle changes that would have caused or would have given me this great luck. It was just that my cancer responded to the treatment that I was given. Pure and simple, that's it. And I've been extremely fortunate and rare to continue without having progression all these years for whatever reason. I can't take credit for it. I don't blame myself for getting cancer, but I can't take credit for being a unicorn either.
2: I take what people say to me, and I actually sometimes don't sleep because I want to help everybody, but I know I can't, you know. I haven't changed the way I eat. I haven't, I need to exercise because I'm on steroids. And everybody keep calling me like, Sheila, why is your face so fat? And it's like, I've been on steroids for two and a half years. That's what they do. (laughs) But um, no, I haven't um, changed Mm -mm. I'm just me, I'm just, I've always been a person to help, that was even before breast cancer. I get so many calls and texts and sometimes I just have to do self-care.
4: So I think I was going into the appointment fairly confident that If I had a recurrence, it was probably just a local recurrence. I think it's important to understand for me, even being a nurse, I didn't understand that there was a sequential, that there wasn't a sequential event. I didn't realize you could skip from stage one to stage four. Mm -hmm. I wasn't educated on NBC at the time. So I think I didn't expect it to be stage four when I went in and I actually argued with him because he pulled up the scans. Yeah, I was in shock. And the look on his face was really what brought me down. He got tears in his eyes. He was, we were touching knees. He was, he moved his stool over to where I was sitting and took my hands. And just his body language alone told me that this isn't good this is not good news and my husband was with me and of course we were all sitting there crying by by the end of the of the appointment so yeah I remember it like it was yesterday I really didn't think that I would be alive six months, a year, two years later after that. And so I didn't plan. I wouldn't say that I was depressed, but I was very fearful. And once I got into the metastatic community and started meeting other people who were living and thriving with this disease, little by little, I think I went from being fearful. I I reached the acceptance stage and I thought, you know what, there's nothing I can do one way or the other that is going to change how long I live with this disease but I can change how I live each day and I can change my focus my attitude and I can look for more hope in each day and I don't have to sit there and think about I'm probably going to be dead which was a constant thought that was always running through my head we'd talk about doing something three months and I think I might be dead.
0: was the type to be there to support others. And when I was diagnosed with breast cancer the first time and going through all that I went through and having the support that I had, and I didn't really even know anybody else going through a breast cancer diagnosis, but I knew then that I wanted to do something going forward to help support others. And I did start a very small nonprofit breast cancer organization, Turlesa Fights Breast Cancer Incorporated. And with that, I help mentor, uh, educate, I support small bills for a breast cancer patient going through treatments or whatever, and just try to be there. I I have sat in hospitals. I stayed overnight with someone I had never met. I had just met her, a godmother from my church, and she was gonna be staying overnight alone, and she was on fall risk. I just stayed, it was the same hospital that I had my treatments. I just woke up, did my scans, and went home. So it's it's those little personal, personable things that mean so much and that I saw in my journey. And I knew that I had to do what I could to support someone else in their journey.
2: Well, I actually started going to a breast cancer support group and they came to a Living Beyond Breast Cancer and they invited me. And the fir- I met two young ladies seeing that I was alone. They actually live up in Chicago, my friend Latoya, and we've just been friends ever since. And when I went, I'm like, well, where are the black people at? <laughs> there were a few and I'm like, you know, something this is black people not hearing about stuff like this? Or, you know, where are the black oncologists and we're, you know, no, we need more. So that's when I was like, okay, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> so that's when I chose advocacy and it's just been I had great friends, um, my friend Sarita and Adrian who passed away one month actually maybe like one month apart from wow. 2016. So I see a lot of death from metastatic breast cancer. But it pushes me more to like, do, we gotta find <laughs> we gotta find a cure or something not just make it to where we can just live longer and not have to worry about leaving our kids and, and I always want to leave my legacy. I
4: think just the advocacy that I'm involved in brings me a measure of joy almost every day. If I feel like I can help one person each and every day doing something, then I feel like I've, I don't know, like I've used this gift of, of being a unicorn as, as well as I can, because it, it really does. I mean, it's, it's difficult at times, but it also brings me great joy. I'm a little scattered. I do a little of this and a little of that. And honestly, I'd never done any type of advocacy before my training in 2017. And I didn't even know what advocacy was going to look like for me. So at first it was more of a social, emotional support type thing. I think I learned as I went what it was I was interested in. And I still do a lot of the social, emotional type things. I founded a a Facebook group for those who are newly diagnosed with MBC. And so I, I enjoy that because I enjoy helping them to learn factual information about the disease itself. I thoroughly love the science behind the disease. So attending conferences normally is so much fun for me not just for the learning process but for the networking and seeing my friends that i get to see at these conferences and and then i've done a couple of other things i knew that there were opportunities that came my way that would not have come my way had i not uh, become a member of this exceptional community of metastatic advocates And so that kind of has led me to a lot of the things that I've done, the opportunities that I've had. It's opened doors for me that never would have opened had I not gotten involved in advocacy. And honestly, I still think I'm trying to figure out who I want to be when I grow up as an advocate. I truly love, I can't say that I want to be only one type of advocate. I don't want to only do Research advocacy. I don't want to only do legislative advocacy or social and emotional support. I like having it all. And I like doing a little bit of everything. And you're right, it's not for everyone. And I I never judge someone who isn't interested in doing advocacy. I think what really got me into it was after we finished our, our training class in 2017, we lost our first class member two weeks after the completion of the training. And then we lost another five members of our class within six months following that. And I wasn't doing well dealing with these deaths. It was literally paralyzing me because it was the first time I had experienced the death of someone that I knew from this disease. And it took me about six months to figure out that if I started helping others more, That was a way to fuel that, to turn that grief from something that would paralyze me into a fire that would fuel me to do more. And I think that's where really, by about 2018, that's when I really hit my stride and said, okay, I'm devastated when I lose a friend. I'm devastated even if I didn't meet them in person. It's awful losing these people But I've learned to now channel that grief into something productive. And that's why advocacy brings me so much joy, because I know I'm going to continue losing friends. But if I know, and especially those friends of mine who are advocates, I know how much it means to them for us to continue saying their name and working hard to try and change the landscape of this disease. So I do it as much in their name as I do for
2: myself.
0: I will say keeping your attitude in check. And I know a positive attitude does not cure cancer. I'm completely aware of that, but it can't hurt either. I go down to the cancer center, I put some makeup on most of the time, put some heels on. Just to go down to the cancer center because I'm trying to get my mindset ready for whatever. Because being metastatic, you just don't know. I've gone down to get treatments and my blood pressure was up and end up having to stay in the hospital. Then I started packing a bag in my car just so that I have some clothes with me, just in case. So I, I try to think of it that tight in, in those regards. Again, just don't let it overwhelm you so much mentally because we all know that anything that you just let cloud your judgment and you're going to clam up, you're going to tense up, and then you may not be able to think treatments, options, or whatever. And I think it's easier for us to give in and give up as opposed to jump in there in the fire and fight and move forward. So I try to tell people to take yourself out of the equation a little bit, I'm trying to, try to get your feelings out of it and see what we can do. Okay, what are my options? And try to move forward that way. Because it, it is a tough road ahead. I don't try to, I tell people upfront, you ask me about my journey, you ask me about different surgeries, I'm gonna give it to you. I don't wanna sugarcoat it to where it's false information because to me, you can't use that anyway. And what's the point of giving you that? I give it to you up front and, yeah. and let you, we all face different things. We have different bodies going through this. So the general picture of it is getting your mindset together to move forward.
3: I I try to let others know that cancer isn't fun for anybody. It's, it's not easy, but you can take it a day at a time. And I, I do have a, a word that's my slogan, which is courage. And I I can give you my acronym, what it stands for. It's continuing onward under rigorous and grueling experiences. And I like to say that we all have courage somewhere inside of us. You might have to dig deep for it. You might not have it every day, but it's there. And you can continue. They're not alone. And don't be afraid to ask questions knowledge is power, reach out for help and don't be afraid to accept help. I think the first and most important thing
4: is you're not going to die tomorrow from this disease or it's unlikely that you're going to die. So don't plan on dying, plan on living each and every day. None of us knows when that time is going to be. So try to make the best of each day. Try not to read and believe everything that you read I've had many who've said if you read it sounds like you're dying tomorrow and so I think it's very important for them to understand that yes there are statistics out there we'll always have statistics but those are just numbers and people fall on either side of those numbers and there are always exceptional responders yes there are people who Who don't make it as long as what those statistics project. But I think it's very important. I I know a lot of oncologists will put a calendar stamp on their patient and say, you have two years to live. And there's nothing that infuriates me more than that. I absolutely, it's really hard to get that. You can't unhear that. And once an oncologist has said that to a patient, they can't stop thinking about it and they can't, they get paralyzed and they can't live each day or have any hope because they're sitting there thinking about how much longer they have to live. So I think those are the most important things to me is just to take it one day at a time, connect with other people who are living with this disease. Even if you have the best family and friend support system Your peers who are living with this disease, they get it and they can relate to your fears, to your concerns, to your joys. When we get a scan or we get good results, nobody wants to celebrate as much as another person who's living with the disease. Yeah, connect with, find a network, find your tribe, find your people and make sure that some of those people are people who get it, who are living with this disease that can be hopeful. And I think it helps you to get through each day. And I think another thing that's very important is to give yourself grace and have patience. When you're first diagnosed, the emotions that you experience, and they're up and down and they're all over the place, it's not always going to be like that. Give yourself time and patience. Six months down the road, you'll feel a little different. A year, even more different. Two years, you will eventually reach this place of call acceptance. And it doesn't mean that you're okay with having the disease. It just means that you're not living in this extreme
5: fear every single day. I think that the most important thing to keep in mind is that everything about you is unique. So all the information you have from what has happened in trials or even to people that you moved, those are data points. Uh, so if you think about, like, a curve of the distribution on what the outcomes are, like, those are points on that graph. And everyone is, is different. And you can never tell by how someone else did how you wrote it. Everyone is very unique, all of those truths that we believe they are just data points they are just information about other people or things that happened in the past they don't mean anything about ourselves and hearing about these other data points like what you're doing in this episode with sharing stories of unicorns that gives people hope and it's not something special that they did or that's a lot it's I don't know, ninety percent lot. there's some aspect of good care. Having great teams and working with your doctors, that's very really important as well. But ultimately I know plenty of people who had some of the best treatments and traveled all over the country to continue getting the best opinions and and they die. While there are people in the, um, isolated areas that don't have a lot of options for um, their medical teams. And they were lucky, and the cancer really responds really well for a long time. So I think the, the main message is this, you, you are M equals one. There is no certainty about you from hearing stories of other people. I think it's important to realize that your life will change completely. So everything you had imagined your life would be like will be different. You'll still have wonderful moments, and you will have lessons that you weren't thinking you would ever learn, but you will also have way harder moments than you thought. That said, you never had any idea about what would really happen to yours to you in your life so we always like have this reality in our minds but that's not exactly how it's going to go so you're playing this game and you're dealt these cards and then you look at your cards and you, you play the best game you can with those cards that you were given and sometimes you have to fold sometimes you <laughs> play and then it turns out that you have better cards and you saw you did so i think like about life in general that's the message that i that i would have wanted to hear and i don't even know if it would have registered but that's how it registers today, yeah. but also more specifically about MDC per se. I think there are a few important things that I would tell someone and that is learn about your disease as much as you can, get a second opinion, find people that have a similar subtype, ask them how they felt with specific drugs, how they uh, mitigated side effects. There's a wealth of knowledge in the patient community and I think in general, the cancer community needs to do a better job at elevating the knowledge that patients have. This is really what we do with grasp, and I feel very strongly about it.
2: As noted, we all want to find out what researchers are thinking about these exceptional responders. What creates that luck that both Janice and Julia spoke about when discussing their many years of progression-free survival? And we're not alone. Here is Janice Cloudon on her personal quest to get studied to help us all get to better treatments and cures.
4: I go to a lot of conferences normally other than COVID and it's one of the things that I've been known to do at every conference is I'll walk up to a researcher especially someone who's talking about new types of research or if they're talking about triple negative disease in the metastatic setting I walk up to them and I say could you please study me and it's not just for my benefit it's okay all of my friends are metastatic triple negative they're dying and they're dying quickly why did i have the response that i did and they aren't and i know that's there's not one answer to that question but i think we need to not only study those who don't respond to treatment we need to study those who i'm an exceptional responder and at this point i'm an outlier so I do think, I think I'm worth being studied.
2: <laughs> Many experts would agree. To hear more about what we can learn from our outliers, we spoke with Dr. Stephanie Graf, a medical oncologist at Sarah Ken and a medical advisor at the Dr. Susan Love Foundation for Breast Cancer Research.
6: We do a lot of statistics in cancer land, right? Where we say that somebody's median survival or average survival or five-year survival or blah, blah, blah. And that doesn't tell you what you are. (laughs) It tells us what a group of people is if we divide the group in half, that half will be this and half will be that, or the split down the middle will look like this. And so those outliers trying to get a better sense of, what outliers look like, is really important for us to better understand that global research breast cancer community. And it's the same thing as looking at gender and sexual identity and racial identity, is that if we don't understand patients whose cancer comes back 20 years later, or patients who live 15 years instead of two years then we're not really understanding breast cancer. And if we don't understand patients who are the unicorns who exceed all expectations, then we can't understand what's special about their particular biology, response, disease characteristics. And who knows, maybe that's something that we can engineer. That's a weird word to use there, but truly biologic engineering has gone leaps and bounds, that may be something that we can do someday. If there are metastatic breast cancer that always respond by decades to certain drugs and we can make everybody be, that would be amazing.
2: One of the many great initiatives of the Dr. Susan Love Foundation is the creation of the Love Research Army, which connects researchers with patients living with MVC. Here is Dr. Stephanie Grounds with more on the Love Research Army.
6: Dr. Love describes it as a giant email list. And so you can go and sign up. And any time a research group reaches out to us and is interested in advertising their research, our sort of criteria is that it has to be on humans. And they have to report back to us. So if we're going to help them promote their research, we also want to hear what the outcome is. And then we send the email out to the whole army, saying this is a trial that we have going on. And we do it across our social media channels and also to this giant sort of email listserv. And we don't try to filter it in any way. If it's a research trial that's looking specifically for transgender Latinos, It still goes to everybody because you never know whose next door neighbor or soccer coach or middle school librarian is going to fit that. And sometimes when we send that email out, it's not somebody on the email. It's that they connect to somebody who's not on the email that maybe fits that metric and helps them connect to the research study that's right or interesting for them. And so that's a really nice kind of benefit of signing up. And right now we're really focusing on diversifying. We really do want to live that mission of making sure that when somebody advertises their research or promotes their research to the research army, that they're getting a representative sample of who we are as America. We want diversity across race and gender and sexual identity. Regardless of whether or not you have a breast cancer diagnosis or not, we do prevention and risk reduction studies as well as healthy volunteer studies. And then both early stage and metastatic uh, breast cancer research all gets advertised through the Army. And those emails go out. Right now, there's about 38,000 members with real-time access to a wide array of studies. And really interesting studies are coming through the Love Research Army.
2: One of these research studies focused on NBC unicorns is the Outliers Extreme Long-Term Survivors with Metastatic Cancer Study from the University of Wisconsin, Madison. We spoke with principal investigator, Dr. Mark Burkhart and asked him to tell us about the inspiration behind his study of long-term survivors with NBC. He told us how the study was started, how it is structured, and some initial impressions.
7: Hello, my name is Mark Burkhardt. I am a professor of medicine at the University of Wisconsin. One day, I was at clinic, and one of my partners was not available. And so I had the great pleasure of meeting a woman who goes by the name of Peg. And Peg came in and saw me and told me a story I had never heard before, which was she had breast cancer. That started in 1978, and it recurred in 1982 and was metastatic, and she had been on treatment after treatment for years till the date she saw me, and she said she had been on a current treatment, and the scans showed maybe some subtle changes in the tumors. And so she asked, what should we do next? And I scratched my head because I said, I know what all the textbooks say, but the textbooks, you're not in the textbooks. I know what they say to do, but you're different than everyone else. And so that got me thinking of what makes her tip. And she had a lot of ideas. She said, I do this or I do that. And I said, well, maybe that's why you're exceptional. The Exceptional responders are people who get a drug and their tumors go away completely. She never was an exceptional responder. Of all the treatments she had, she clearly did not fit that category. So I called her an exceptional survivor. And she gave us some advice on trying to find some other exceptional survivors and try to figure out what what makes them tick. So that's what we've been working on. There's two levels of the study. The first level is just a survey about all that information. And to participate in the survey, you have to be an adult with metastatic breast cancer, a woman or a man. And so that's it. And the reason we did that is to capture other people living with metastatic breast cancer, regardless of survival, who might ultimately have a shorter survival so you can compare What's exceptional about these individuals? There's a second part of the study, and that is trying to find some of the genes that are involved in controlling metastatic breast cancer. And so we've asked a smaller number of them with tumor samples that we can access to allow us to go to the pathology department where those tumor samples are housed and to give a saliva sample to do gene tests. And what we're doing is when people fill out the survey, we take the longest survivors and we're starting to ask them to consent for that second process. We have around 60 total that we're targeting. About 20 are done with the sequencing, are in the analysis phase. Our biggest challenges are getting a large enough group to make meaningful comparisons of a lot of variables. We were hoping to get to around 2,000. If you want to count the number of people who completed every last question of that survey, it's around 750. About 1,000 have completed most of it. We worked with Susan Love's Army of Women, as it was. It's now the Research Army, I believe, because it includes men. And I think they've helped us with that to some degree, but it's a challenge. We'd like to have a diverse sample that reflects the population in large in terms of race and ethnicity, and so we have captured that uh, as well. We'd like to have at least a fraction of male breast cancers, but we haven't had many participants who are men, maybe just a handful. And then sometimes we're simply limited on who has accessible sample so there are other factors that come into play that are completely practical. But ideally, we'd have a, a representative sample of the longest survivors. I suspect we will find people like Peg and some people who, we, who might not need as intensive treatment, although the data needs to bear this out. My impression is They may benefit a lot from the anti-estrogen medicines, but less so from chemotherapy and would be better off not having chemotherapy. My greatest hope is we're going to find people right at the beginning who we say, your tumor has the biology that's going to put you in this exceptional survivor group, and we're very confident of that. And while we should give you these relatively low-toxicity medicines we shouldn't accept this level of toxicity because your survival is going to be good even without them. So I think that might be one impact. And then there may be other genes that pinpoint benefit to specific drugs. I don't know if we're going to have enough data to link each drug to genes. And then there's some interesting preliminary correlations we have with habits and other things. And we're very cautious when we talk about it. But In our preliminary analyses, if we look at all the habits of these 1,000 people and do some complicated statistical regression against how long they've survived thus far, what we find is that it at best explains only 8% of the variability. So I think at least all the information we've captured in the survey isn't going to explain very much of why some people are long survivors versus not. I'm hoping that by the end of this year, we will have a, an updated presentation of San Antonio and a manuscript. It's going to describe the first cohort of patients who are exceptional survivors that we've identified at our hospital and the genomic analyses.
2: We wanted to leave you all with one more thought from our friend,
0: Teresa Shepherd. Oh, I know I'm going to die. I, I, I know, but I'm not afraid of it. I'm literally not afraid of it, because I'm living now. And I'm living at my best now. Even with all that I have going on, I'm living at my best. The best that I have with what I know has been dealt to me. Right. So, No, I'm I'm not letting it get to me. Moment to moment. I mean, I have swelling on the brain. I just left a doctor's appointment and I'm laughing saying I have my bags packed. I'm going to the beach.
1: This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and our truly amazing team of Bob DeVito, Dar Finkelstein, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, Ellen Landsberger, Sheila McGlone, Riley Starr, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at SHARE Cancer Support. Our senior intern is Sarah Mann, along with interns Angelica Alberstadt Emily Lewis, and Amy Tedeschi. We have benefited from expert social media consulting from Jake Amarelli and sound design and original music compositions from Jim Cremins. You can find more episodes of Our NBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. And look for a new episode on Mondays and check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org.